morning, everyone. There we go. Um, welcome. It's such a privilege and a blessing to be with you this morning. As we get back in the habit of worshiping together, as we get back in the habit uh, of being one together. We're glad you chose to worship God with us this morning. Um, as we think about it, it's a blessing to be not only family as Christ and brethren in Christ, but to be God's family with each other. So we're glad you're here. You're watching online. We also are thankful that you're with us. This season of Lent has been talking about walking with God. And it's kind of talking about walking with God is this tension that we're holding two things at once. Again, a lot of times we think about tension, it's clapping, we think about tension is being pulled in two different directions. But in Lent, we're invited to hold two things at once because that's also possible. So we remember in Lent that Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness alone. We also need to remember through Lent, especially as we gear up for Palm Sunday and then Resurrection Sunday, we also need to remember that Jesus is marching towards Calvary. From the wilderness, we focus on prayer, on self-restraint, on repentance, on reconciliation, which we'll talk about this morning. But as we keep our eyes on Calvary, we realize that God also calls us to keep our mark time, to pick up our cross and follow Him, to live empowered by the Spirit. Another point of tension in life is that we do all of these things, we do it not only as individuals, but also as a community, as a family. So as we go through life, the question becomes, not just how am I praying, but how are we praying? Not just what are we refraining from, but how are we as a community focusing on the things of God? How are we as a community, how am I individually doing repentance, reconciliation, taking up my cross to follow Jesus? Give your Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, we'll be reading the story of David and the Hibbethes. If you are following inside, we'll also have it up on the stage. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 9, we'll be reading the entire chapter starting in verse 1. So David asked, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel and Lodabar. So King David had them brought to Lodabar and from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When the Philistine, son of David, Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Do not be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always be at my table. The servant shall bow down and say, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, called Stuart, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belongs to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson will always be provided for him. And the Philistine, grandson of your master, will always be at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty siblings. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So the Philistine ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. The Philistine had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of the Philistine. And the Philistine lived in Jerusalem, because he always ate at the king's table. He was playing in both. Let's pray together. Lord of reconciliation, we thank you for the reconciliation, the peace, the harmony that you bring. It's the moment that was afforded to us in Jesus Christ. 
right, we can have peace and reconciliation with God. We can have harmony and reconciliation with creation. We can have peace with ourselves. But yes, Lord, we can also have peace and harmony with one another. So, Lord, we thank you this morning that we have been loved by you so that we can love this world as you love the world. And we have been graced by you so that we can grace our world the way you have graced us. And we have been reconciled to you so that we can go and be light bringers in this world, that we can be peacemakers in this world, that we can be reconciled for the glory of Jesus our Christ, for the work that is the kingdom, and for your glory and honor of Father and Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for those of us who grew up in church, reconciliation is one of those words we maybe heard a lot. One of those words that go around. And even now, if you look at modern Christianity, Christianity in the West, it's a word we talk about a lot. But what is reconciliation? If you look up a basic uh, dictionary definition, you'll find something in terms of restoring relations between. So the idea of reconciliation is reinstating something, it's repairing something, renovating something, and then returning something. The idea of reinstatement calls back to something that maybe is not as it should be, so returning it back to the condition it was in when it was healthy. The idea of repairing is again something broken or some kind of rupture that you go in to fix. The idea of renovation is maybe something that has gone stale that you resurrect back to life. But all of them, reinstating, repairing, renovating, point to this idea of return. Which is kind of where we brought last week when we talked about repentance. Remember, return in the biblical sense, especially in the Old Testament, is this concept of shoes. Shoes is not only acknowledging where we fall short, it's not only acknowledging, hey, I'm going the wrong way, it's stopping. It's turning our eyes back to God, it's sticking the path on the right direction, it's returning home before God sends us out. And that's how these two things, repentance and reconciliation, aren't necessarily intention like this. They're not necessarily intention that pulls us apart, but they're two things that we can hold as we walk together. Because reconciliation points to reunion, but we cannot have reunion without acknowledging this rupture and rift. Last week when we talked about sin, we talked about this idea that Dr. Dennis Edwards talked it like this. Sin is not only the evil thoughts and deeds that individuals commit. Sin is the pervasive power that damages and corrupts God's creation. When you think about that in light of reconciliation, it might not be breaking law, but it might be broken relationships. It might be broken trust. It might be relationships we've allowed to, to get into disrepair, to, to grow stale, or relationships that are not what they should be, and they're not healthy. It's about also then realizing that God calls us to bring reconciliation here. And that idea of reconciliation is kind of summed up, at least for me, as the idea of coexisting in harmony. Things that just fit together. Reconciliation is making things right. So it's coexisting in harmony, kind of like steak and potatoes, peanut butter and jelly, sweet and salty. And for all my healthy people out there, kale, that superfood, the veggie food, um, veggie lovers being kale and the trash can, right? Some things just fit together better in person, right? But that idea of coexisting in harmony points us to the ultimate goal of reconciliation, and that is God calls us to bring shalom to our world. Shalom reminding is that it's peace with God, yes. It's peace with ourselves, yes. But even more than ourselves, it's peace with others around us and peace with all creation. So the reason 
were called to be reconciled is that through Christ Jesus, we have been reconciled with God. Through Christ Jesus, it's possible for all things to be reconciled to Him, all of creation, yes. But in Christ Jesus, we then are called to be light bringers, to be peacemakers, to be reconcilers with ourselves, yes, but also with one another. Now, why do we often need reconciliation? Well, the easy answer is usually conflict, a brokenness, a darkness. Sometimes the conflict arises through heritage and tradition. And I fall back about my family this week. And, and in the 1890s, I think it's my great-great-grandfather, but it's my grandmother's grandfather. In the 1880s or the 1890s, at his late age in life, he realized that it was really hard to be a black man in America. And honestly, in 2020, that really resonated with me. In the 1890s, he realized almost at the end of his life that he had been enslaved. He had fought for his freedom. You know, he wasn't a pacifist. He didn't discover the brethren in Christ yet. I don't think they had been here yet. And even the way the brethren in Christ skipped West Africa, not that I'm bitter or anything, but he skipped West Africa and went south. So we'll, we'll forget them, right? But in the 1890s, he decided it's so hard to be a black man in America that with the rise of the KKK, with Reconstruction ending in his life and his family being a danger, he decided to sell it all, throw his hand out, and return to Africa. Yet when he returned to Africa, he realized that he was an African American in Africa. And there was this tension of, of which heritage would win out, and that tension bore forth in, 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 in almost two separate classes that were created from these former enslaved people who came not just from America, but also the island, and then these native Africans. There was a fight over heritage and tradition where the powerful won out. And it brought about this conflict or, or this, 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 this tension that lived in our country even to this day. And vividly reminded me of Jacob and Esau, where you had these two sons that were born, and there were basically two tribes in their mother's womb warring against each other. Not a tension of hand in hand, but definitely a tension of butting heads. And in Jacob and Esau, you have literally how not to parent. I always get weary when people say, I'm going to raise my kids, you know, biblically. And I'm like, are you sure? Like, are you really, really sure? Do you know what that means? Like, if you want me to say, I'm going to raise my kids to follow Jesus, and Jesus is the example. When you say biblically, there's also some really bad biblical examples, right? And remember the story of Jacob and Esau. The one reason they were bad is that the parents take favorites, right? They, they take favorites, and, and it, it bore out into this tension and this conflict in relationships to the point where the mother actually helped Jacob steal his brother's pedigree, steal his brother's birthright, steal his brother. What was traditionally went to the eldest son of the son that came first, he stole it, and that led to conflict. But what we forget about the story is that later on, Jacob and Esau are about to meet. And Jacob is so terrified. Jacob honestly believes that his brother is going to harm him for stealing his time, for stealing his heritage, or stealing that birthright. That Jacob actually does what? He splits his family into And I think this is one of the most underrated, heartbreaking stories in the Bible. He splits his family in two. Not because he doesn't trust God, but because he doesn't trust his brother. And his thinking is basically, you know what? If we're split in two, at least half of us will survive. Because I've stolen his heritage. I've stolen his birthright. I've stolen what rightfully belongs to him, according to tradition. He might kill me. 
And so this family is split in two. But what's fascinating or amazing, actually, is that God is a God of reconciliation. And God moves in the heart of Jacob. And God moves in the heart of Esau. And instead of bloodshed, you have them united as brothers. And the reconciliation that comes forth from Jacob and Esau is not only that, hey, we're brothers again, but for years they lived in land side by side. Reconciliation is possible even when we fight for heritage and tradition. Reconciliation is also needed because if it's not heritage and tradition, sometimes it's just our differences. And even though we're one family, it's our differences. Again, I flash back this week to my home country of Liberia. And, you know, it wasn't too, we weren't really keen on going around calling ourselves slaves or enslaved or ex-slaves. So we started calling ourselves American Liberian. That's why if you look at my name, Henry Johnson, doesn't sound very African. But even though we had united on the banner of Liberia, even though we had become one country, we still held on to our differences. And we used our differences and we used our privilege to literally be above a whole group of people. Needless to say, that brings tension. When you have any kind of power, you need to be sacrificing it for the greater good. When you have any kind of privilege, you need to be sacrificing that privilege for the greater good. That's the example we have in Jesus. Someone who thought it nothing to give up heaven to come to earth. Someone who thought it nothing to live and love to show us how to live and love to please God. Someone who thought it nothing to go to Calvary and die on the cross for our sins to be resurrected on the third day, to not even know when the last day is that He's coming back, but to work on heaven diligently until it's perfect for us. Jesus is the God who sacrifices privilege and calls us to do the same. The conflict comes when we use that privilege to harm others. And that reminds me, again, of Jacob, but also Laban. And you remember that story, how Laban lied to him and deceived him. Now, for almost 20 years, Jacob had to live with his father-in-law, who just kept moving the goalposts and moving the goalposts. So you remember that when Jacob was finally finished with Laban, what did he do again? Gathered his family, got everyone together, and said, you know what? It's time to go home. I can't live reconciled to Laban because I do not trust him, and he keeps taking advantage of me. And, and, and they leave and they go on the road and, and one of his wives actually takes Laban's gods and, and they're on the road and Laban is chasing after him. But that story too ends in reconciliation. And it's interesting to me that when Laban and Jacob come together, I think they finally see each other eye to eye. And I think when they finally see each other eye to eye and God moves inside both of them, they realize that they're better together than fighting against one another. And that passage ends with one of my favorite, I don't know if it's just a prayer, but concepts in all the Bible, where Laban and Jacob pledged Mizpah to one another. And the idea of Mizpah was, God is my witness between you and me. The idea here is simply, I will trust God while we are apart. I would say this is a great, this is a great um, a concept for parents when you send up the kids to school for the first time. But it's also a great concept when the kids go to college. Or whenever you're apart from people you love, right? I will trust God while we are apart. God will be our watchdog, our witnesses, watching over both of us while we are apart. But sometimes the heritage and the tension that leads to conflict among not recognizing a family, sometimes it needs to not just squabbles and discord, 
But in my country, it led to an assassination in 1980, an assassination attempt in 85, a civil war that starts in 1989, and goes all the way to 2003. What we pass down by not reconciling to one another the law that we shouldn't be, it's truth that looks nothing like that. We have to not only own that, but this is why I believe we're all called to be reconciled. And you see what happened with Jacob and Esau. Not only is seen in Jacob and Laban, but it also burst through in Jacob himself. Because when he has kids, all he learned about parenting is that I get to have favorites. Jacob wanted a favorite wife and then he had a favorite kid. And all that generation of, of not just neglect, or all that, all that generation and generation of people not really holding on to the fact that they're one, that they're family, that they're following God, all that discord leads to this favorite son being sold into slavery. Leads the sons going before their father and lying that he was sick. It leads to years and years of separation, which is what not being reconciled does. And I think it's interesting that even years later when they're reconciled again with Joseph, and we know the story, right? What man, what the brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. But I love that when they reconciled at the end, it was again this idea of they finally see one another. And I think, I think the reason God was like, focus on Jacob this week, and tell a little bit of Liberia this week, is because Jacob is the father who birthed Israel. God's people in the Old Testament. And Jacob is a story of reconciliation at the end of the relationship. But for us, we, God's people of this Testament, Jesus is who birthed Jesus birthed the church. And what I love about Jesus is that reconciliation is afforded to us not at the end of the relationship, but at the beginning of the relationship. Because we who were once far, Christ's blood has brought near. Because we who have fell short, who had earned separation from God, the gift of God is Jesus Christ. We who had died and fallen short because of our sins can now be reconciled to God. Jacob birthed Israel and has to wait till the end for reconciliation. Jesus birthed us and gives us reconciliation in the beginning. So we don't just have to, to say, hey, we have a heritage. No, we now have a heavenly heritage because of Jesus. Because of Jesus' blood, we who are far have now been made brought near. Because of Jesus' blood, we can know shalom. We can know restored relations. We can know harmony between us and God, between us and each other, between us and our world, and between us and even ourselves. Because Christ reconciles us to God. And I think it's important that we know that, that Jesus reconciles us to God. And I think just as important as knowing that one is knowing that Jesus calls us to be reconcilers in our world. Because reconciliation, I believe, is the heart of God's work. Reconciliation is compelled by Christ's love. And reconciliation is the fruit of living fully in God. Jacob struggled with reconciliation because at those points in his life, he wasn't fully living for God. We can do the same and follow those same levels of perception. But if we're willing to live fully for God, then we will be reconciled to the world. 
Now, our passage this morning doesn't begin really in 2 Samuel 9. The story actually begins with David and Jonathan. This is a story about covenant, and it's a story about kindness. A covenant was a, a lasting, loyal agreement between two parties. And, and, and this kindness that is said in the Old Testament, again, our English kind of betrays us a little bit, because it's not just like, let me be kind to you. The kindness is the Hebrew word, tested. In the New Testament, it shows up as agape. This kindness was the idea of loving the way God loves. Working to do what works best for your good. Always putting the other above myself. So when we see kindness in this passage, we need to remind that David isn't just saying, let me be kind to Mr. Rochelle. David is saying, let me love Mephibosheth the way God has loved me. And that's important because David makes a covenant with Jonathan. This is found in 1 Samuel 18 and 1 Samuel 20. And I think it's important that we understand covenant because most of the New Testament is actually covenant language. This is how the people made agreements. So, for example, in a covenant, the two parties would come together and, and they would exchange roles. They would take off their robes and, and they would put it on. Like, I would take off my robe and put it on you, and you take off your robe and put it on me. Because robes was a status symbol. It represented who you were. And remember, Jonathan at the time was the crown prince. And David was God's anointed. They should have been rivals who lived like this in tension. They should have been rivals who were fighting each other. Yet they were able to walk side by side because they were willing to submit to God's plan for Israel. And they're putting on the robes and this idea of, all that I am is now wrapped in you. And all that you are is now wrapped in me. So when you get the New Testament, Paul says, we will put on the robes of righteousness. That is why you can put on the robes of righteousness today. Because Jesus has said, all that I am is now wrapped in you. And all that you are, I have now taken on Calvary free. In covenant, they would also exchange weapons. And this wasn't just like a ceremonial act. The idea here was, I give you my sword. When you're in trouble, I will be the first to fight. And you give me my sword, or you give me your sword, because when I'm in trouble, you will be the first to fight. So we talk about even the idea of a spiritual warfare, or, or, or the, the, the putting on the armor of God. That, that, all of that is covenant language. Because the idea here is, when you hurt, not only do I hurt, but when you're in trouble, I will be by your side. In covenant, they exchange possessions. Because they weren't just saying, all that I am is wrapped in you. They're saying, all that I have belongs to you. And all that you have belongs to me. In covenant, they would change names, right? In our culture, we have a couple different covenants. We have, like, the marriage covenant, which sometimes you see the couples and they change things. That is something that goes back all the way to the ancients. And the idea here was simply that, like, I belong to you and you belong to me. The two of us have become one. You also see that in businesses to this day. That's why doctor's offices usually have three or four names, right? Our lawyer's offices have three or four names. Again, these are agreements they're making that we are now one. This is not just Johnson's doctor's office, it's Johnson's law offices. This is Johnson and Dalton, for example, right? You come together. The idea here was covenant is the name come together as one. The other thing about covenant that I, the last two things I find the most fascinating about these covenants that ancient debate. But they would make these vows, and they would make them in blood. So even our thinking, our idea of blood brothers, this is where it comes from. Some cultures would literally slice, slice, shake hands. And this is important because their idea was, my blood now flows in you. And your blood now flows in you. So 
So again, when you see New Testament language about the blood of Christ, that's why the blood of Christ covers us, because Jesus' blood now flows in us and gives us the new life. So the idea here is you're coming together as one. In some cultures, they wouldn't do the blood brothers' handshake. They would actually cut here and cut here and go like this, pointing us maybe to the cross, but then they would bring that together. And again, they were saying, we belong to each other. And the reason all of this is important isn't just that it shows up in the New Testament. It's important for us to realize that when you made covenant with someone, it wasn't just your word that you were giving them. You were giving them all of yourself, your status, your weapons, your protection, your possessions, your name, and even your shared effort. And to celebrate the covenant, we probably have a sacrifice. And in the sacrifice, we did something called, you know, now we call it the infinity wall because we were back there. And what they would do is, if you can picture that infinity symbol, the side world eight, what they would do in covenant is they would walk in that eight to signify that this bond that we made to pledge our status to each other, our protection to one another, our possessions to one another, our shared essence and all that we are to one another, it goes on for infinity. And we think that's where we get that infinity symbol from. And after they do that infinity walk, they would sit, and they would have bread, and they would have the cup, and they would celebrate the covenant together. So when you get to the New Testament, you see all these symbols coming back. It's to remind God's people that we are made covenant with God. That we have made relationship with God that extends to eternity. That we get to now put on Jesus' righteousness. That we get the protection from God. That all that God has now belongs to us. That our name is even Christian, the Christ one. We take the name of Christ. That we make the vow to pledge to follow Jesus. And that all that we are belongs to Him. The last thing about covenant, and then we'll get to David and Ephesians, is that it extends to all that is in us. The ancient believed, and they didn't have the science to back them up, but they were right. You know, we often think that because we're so advanced, we're too much farther, right? The ancients believed that your children lived inside of you. So when you made a covenant with someone and extended to your children, even if they're not physically there, because why? Your children live inside of you. So everything that comes from in you, everything that is in you, belongs to the covenant too. So whether you look at our names, brethren, people of God in Christ, or you look at everywhere in the New Testament that you see in Christ, that is covenant language. That is the writers reminding people that because of what Jesus did, you now belong to God. Because of this agreement that Jesus made with the Father and what Jesus did, everything that you're afforded in the covenant now goes to you. So when you get to David and Mephibosheth, you realize that David, because of his covenant with Jonathan, everything that David promised Jonathan now belongs to who? Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. So when David is very king. When David has seen all his enemies wiped out and he's exalted to the throne of Israel, he gathers his advice and he says, who is left? Who is left in Jonathan's house, in Saul's house, that I can engage God's covenant love, that, that I can give God's covenant love to, that I can show that I got the love, that hesed, that kindness to. And one of Saul's servants, Ziba, steps up and he says, oh, this Mephibosheth, but he's waiting. But you don't have to worry about him. He, he's not worth anything. And David says, no, 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 no. I must show him God's kindness 
that David called the Sebastian. And we don't know how he was winning. But I like to think when I read this story, and I still picture it, is that he was lame in his feet. He may have been a paraplegic. And I want you to hold that image for a second. Because you have to understand that David is trying to show kindness to the Sebastian what he's doing. The Sebastian lived in a culture that if you had a political rival, you eliminated them. And I think that's why Zebo might have said, well, he's laying you off to worry about him. So here comes this paraplegic against the all-powerful God-anointed chosen David. And he comes before David. And this man who, who doesn't have, you know, working limbs bows down before David. And I want you to picture how difficult that is. How difficult it is, how sacrificial it is, how humbling it is. How maybe even dehumanizing it is. But he's so scared for his life. What is David going to do to me? What is David going to do to me? So he bows down, and David says, No, 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 no. I've called you to show you I've called you because your father and I are in company. I called you because I made that pledge to your father, and it now extends to you that I will not harm you. No, I will protect you. That all that I have you now belongs to me. That you will sit at the table just like one of my sons. And you will now be reconciled to me. And David even ordered Ziba to serve Saul and Jonathan to now serve the Philistines. And I was thinking about it this week. And there's one lesson I think for all of us in this story. It is reminder that we are all called to be reconciled. Reconciliation is still the heart of God's work. Reconciliation is still needed in our world. Because of what Jesus has done, we're called to do the same. But it's a reminder to us that we have all been loved to be hard to love. That we have all been graced to be hard to grace. That we have all been forgiven and reconciled to God so we must work and be forgiven and to forgive others so that we can be reconciled to them. With love so that we can love. Jesus said, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We are grace to grace. Paul to the Ephesians says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as covenant language in Christ, God forgave you. We're called to reconcile because God has reconciled to us. Again, covenant language, Paul to the Galatians. So, in Christ, you are all, again, covenant language, children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed, covenant language, yourselves with Christ. Because of that, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. My sisters and brothers, my prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for us is that it's not enough for us to know about reconciliation. It's about all of us practicing reconciliation. And that's the work for us this week. For all of us, maybe now you're already thinking of a relationship, thinking of a person, that you need reconciliation with. So the work this week is to ask God, even right now, where do I need reconciliation? Or with whom? What relationship do I need to reinstate? What relationship do I need to replace? What relationship am I allowed to grow stale that I need to renovate? What do I need to return to so I can have this reunion? 
then all these things we've been talking about throughout Lent this season, you're going to commit to doing that. So where do I need reconciliation? Commit it to prayer. And he said prayer is a conversation that which means it's not just us talking, but also us listening and hearing from God. But it's also us coming before God honestly and vulnerably. And as we do that, it's asking us to not only pray to God, but to submit to the Spirit, to take up our cross, to repent, and to return to God. Where do we need reconciliation? With whom do we need reconciliation? And if we're love to life, with whom do we need to love like God? If we are grace to grace, with whom do we need to forgive and share the grace of God? Reconcile to reconcile. With whom do we need to reconcile? It doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that it will be ever easy. But I have to remind us that some of the hardest words that Jesus said wasn't just for the Pharisees, but it's to be who to be. So Jesus says, You either look like me, or how you love, or how you grace, or how you reconcile, and you look like the Father. Light up the band on the worship team. We're going to end by singing a song that, as you know, it's not been around here for a while. And this song is just simply, I need you to survive. And I think by any pastors in the room up front, we'll love to pray for you. Maybe there's something else stirred in you in the sermon, or maybe there's a person you're already thinking of, or a relationship you're already thinking of, that you need to reconcile this, or at least begin the path towards reconciliation. We'd love to pray for you about that or anything. Or maybe you've never made that decision to follow Jesus and you want to be reconciled to God today. We'd love to pray for you for that. But we all stand and sing this song. Will we be reminded that God, yes, has called us to reconciliation. And we live this life. We need God, yes. We also need one another to survive. And they're not meant to be tension points like this. They're not meant to be two things that compete with each other. They're meant to be two things that hold each other, that we hold with both our hands. Because if we need God and we need one another, we can live for God and live for one another. Amen? Let's stand and pray to God.